Corner Fringe Ministry presents Discover Your Calling into Israel, Part 3, by Daniel Joseph. Enjoy. We're going to get right to business today. We're in Part 3 of Your Calling into the Nation of Israel, Discovering Your Hebraic Roots. And if you remember, we began the study in week one by looking at the miraculous work that Yeshua did by breaking down that middle wall of separation. And by his grace, we saw that he had called out the Gentiles. He called them out from the nations to come, be counted, to come, be grafted into the tree of Israel, all through the faith in the Messiah Yeshua, whereby taking the Jew and the Gentile and making them one new man and the Messiah Yeshua. Last week, in part two, we began to do something quite frightening. We began to pull back that veil that curtain on church history. And in the process, we discovered that there were some pretty disturbing things that had taken place over the course of history that would, in fact, impact Christianity to such the extent we are feeling these effects to this very day. And we found doctrines were being introduced into the church that simply couldn't be supported through biblical means. And the church went so far as to actually command that Jews and Gentiles forsake direct commandments that are found in the Word of God that are found in the Bible. And unfortunately, these decrees, these ideologies, theologies, they spread like cancer throughout the church, infected the whole mass of the faith. Well, today, I'm going to continue to take you through some more painful church history. I'm sorry about that. But uh, there appears to be a very destructive pattern of behavior that continues, that cycles from generation to generation to generation throughout church history as though Satan himself was applying pressure to some very key points of the faith, to specific commandments of the faith. And uh, I think you're going to identify what those are as we continue today. Now last week we left off, we had gotten to the 4th century, went from the 1st century to the 4th century, and we're going to pick up there in the 4th century. Now, I want to begin today by reading to you something known as a profession of faith. And basically, this is a document that had come out of the church of Constantinople that outlined the requirements for a Jew to convert to Christianity, to the Christian faith. And this is going to give you some perspective into the Christian church's relationship that they sought to have with the Jewish people. Let's read this. It states, as a preliminary to his acceptance as a catechumen, a Jew must confess and denounce verbally the whole Hebrew people. And forthwith declare that with his whole heart and sincere faith, he desires to be received among the Christians. Then he must renounce openly in the church all Jewish superstition, the priest saying, and he or his sponsor, if he is a child, replying in these words, Listen carefully. I renounce all customs, rites, legalisms, unleavened breads, and sacrifices of lambs of the Hebrews, and all other feasts of the Hebrews. Sacrifices, prayers, aspersions, purifications, sanctifications, propitiations, and fasts, and new moons, and Sabbaths, and superstitions, and hymns, and chants, and observances, and synagogues, and 
the food and drink of the Hebrews. In one word, I renounce absolutely everything Jewish. Every law, right, and custom. So for a Jew to convert to Christianity, according to the profession of faith at the Church of Constantinople, that Jew had to renounce absolutely everything Jewish. And here lies the effects of separating what we see Marcion had done in the early 2nd century. Here lies the effects of separating law from the gospel. You separate the law from the gospel, that perfect harmony. You separate that, and inevitably, this is what you will find. You will find the church separating herself from the Jewish people. The only way a Christian could interact with the Jewish person in the 4th century is if, in fact, that Jewish person no longer talked Jewish, if he no longer walked Jewish, if he no longer looked Jewish. You know, what's so funny is, is when you look at the first century, you had Jews going out persuading Gentiles to live as Jews through faith in the Messiah, Yeshua. We come to the fourth century, what do we have? We have Gentiles going out persuading Jews to not live as Jews, but to live as Gentiles. Church had officially lost its mind. So, for a Jewish person to convert to Christianity in the fourth century, you find the Jewish person... He had to forsake the whole Hebrew Bible. That's what he was asking to, be, to, to actually go out and forsake. Forsake Torah, forsake the commandments of God. I want you to think about something for a second here. Think about some of the things that were listed here by the Christian church requiring the Jew to do to convert to, uh, to Yeshua. I'm going to go through some highlights. Number one, renounce the whole Hebrew race. This is most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. This, just follow this to its logical conclusion. If I was to do this, then in fact I would not adhere to the writings of Paul. I would not adhere to a Paul at all because he was a Hebrew. He was a Jew. Makes you wonder if the church knew that. Take it a step further, very dangerously, I would end up renouncing Mashiach, Christ. He was born a Jew. When the Magi came across from the east, came to worship him, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? He lived as a Jew. He walked as a Jew. He was the Mashiach ben David, and we find he died as a Jew. What was written over the cross? Yeshua HaNatsri, Melech HaYuadim. Yeshua of Nazareth, king of the Jews. He died as a Jew, and guess what? If you read Revelation, he's coming back as a Jew. They asked him to renounce the feast. These beautiful feasts where God has called his children to come to him, to identify with him, to be separate from the world. These beautiful feasts that all have beautiful characteristics of Yeshua. They are asking them to renounce and not celebrate, not identify what God has deemed holy. Renounce new moons and Sabbaths. Well, you look at this, you look at the new moons, and you look at the stars, you look at how he hung the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the whole host of heaven. It is the God of creation. It identifies you with God by observing these things, by observing his timetable, his schedule, his calendar. Sabbath. Sabbath was created with a fact. I mean, all of creation was established with a view to the Sabbath. It's at the heart of Israel's law. It is a holy convocation, God crying out to his people, come and meet with me. 
This is the day you are to assemble together and be with me. It's a special date with Yeshua. And furthermore, and interestingly enough, what is Sabbath all about? Worship. It's all about worship. And the church was asking for people coming in to accept Christ to denounce this. We look further. Renounce the synagogues. The very place, mind you, that Yeshua grew up teaching in. The very place, mind you, that the Apostle Paul taught. Where Jew and Gentile had come together on the Jewish Sabbath, right? To hear about God. To hear about Yeshua. Renounce the food and drink of the Hebrews. In other words, forsake wisdom. No longer identify between what is clean and what is unclean. Also keep in mind that it was for renunciations like this that got the priest rebuked by God himself. We find this in Ezekiel twenty-two twenty-six. Her priests have violated my Torah. They have profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between the holy and unholy. Nor have they made known the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have hidden their eyes from my Sabbath so that I am profaned among them. What a statement. Did you get that? How is the Lord profaned? When you do not distinguish between holy and unholy, when you hide your eyes from the Sabbath, you can read the dietary laws, clean and unclean, Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14. Any wonder why this would be the area that Satan would want to apply pressure? Because all of these things that you are looked at, we looked at, that they were asking to be renounced, all of these things here, see anything familiar? These are the things that are lacking in the church today. And yet Satan has gone out to apply that pressure to make sure generation after generation after generation, we don't acquire these things. That the name of God may be blasphemed. Needless to say, we find that the church has cast off her Hebraic roots. Satan, cam his campaign to go out, to divide and conquer, was proving to be quite successful. The separation of the law from the gospel, we find nature is just merely taking its course here. If you see no value in Torah, if you see no value in the righteousness of God from hearing from his voice, then it will only stand to reason that you will inevitably not see the value in his people, in the Jewish people. We shouldn't wonder what happened to the church. We shouldn't wonder why it doesn't look like the church in Acts, where you see the Jew and Gentile habiting together on the, in the Jewish synagogues, on the Jewish Sabbath, celebrating the Jewish Messiah. You just read history and you understand why. Tragically, as we investigate the history of the church more and more, we find that she has nothing but hatred and contempt for the Jew. Understand this, public enemy number one, century after century after century for the Jew, it was not the Muslims, it was the Christian church. Let me give you some insight. This is very, I think this is very important to do this. I want to give you some insight from a Jewish perspective on the church, okay? This is from a Jewish author um, named Mir Simcha Sokolovsky. And I took this from the, from the great book, uh, Our Hands Are Stained with Blood by Dr. Brown. 
Listen to what Mir says, a Jewish perspective on the Christian church. From his birth, every Christian, practicing or nominal, imbibes the belief that the Jews, i.e. any and every individual Jew, are answerable for the murder of his Messiah. Indeed, the overwhelming majority of the acts of persecution, religious coercion, meaning forced conversion, massacres suffered, uh, massacres suffered in history by our people came at the hands of the Christians. Thus, we see that Christianity was a significant and major cause of Jewish suffering. Do we really wonder why the Jews are not rushing to convert to Christianity today? When you have Christians putting all the blame of the death of the Messiah on the Jews, as though the whole Hebrew race is responsible. They're held responsible. You know that for centuries, the church identified the Jews as Christ killers. What a ridiculous statement. Again, it makes you wonder, did they read the New Testament? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You read John chapter 10, Yeshua says, no one takes my life from me. I give it of my own accord. And thirdly, let's think about this. I'm pretty sure every man on the earth has sinned. And if in fact he came to die for our sins, we all equally share the blame for why he came. Amen? As a result of this kind of behavior, we find the church embracing with open arms anti-Semitism. And remember, this type of rhetoric, it was, it's a symptom of that lawless cancer that was injected by Satan to divide the law from the gospel, that beautiful harmony. Let me give you some further insight into the 4th century. The following quote is by a man named John Chrysostom. And if you ever studied church history, you know exactly who I'm talking about. He was the Archbishop of Constantinople, an early church father, huge in the realms of Christianity. He was a great influence to the Christian church. Well, I want to read to you a passage and give you some perspective on what he thought of the synagogue, on what he thought of the Jewish people. And while I read this, keep in mind, this man had a nickname. He was called the Golden Mouth because he was so articulate and eloquent in his words. Listen to what he has to say. The synagogue is worse than a brothel. It is a den of scoundrels and the repair of wild beasts, the temple of demons devoted to idolatrous cults, the refuge of brigands and debauchees, and the cavern of devils. It is a criminal assembly of Jews, a place of meeting for the assassins of Christ. So we can see that theology being invoked. A house worse than a drinking shop, a den of thieves, a house of ill fame, a dwelling of iniquity, the refuge of devils, a gulf and abyss of perdition, I would say the same things about their souls. As for me, I hate the synagogue. I hate the Jews for the same reason. Well, tell me what you really think, John. Such hatred pouring forth for the people of God. Such hatred for the synagogue. A place established to assemble, to study God's word. To acknowledge that holy convocation of Shabbat, it would have done Mr. Chrysostom well to actually read the New Testament, read the book of Acts, where we do see the Jew and Gentile worshiping together on the Sabbath. It would also have done him well to actually read the writings of Paul, to see what Paul's heart was 
for the Jewish nation. Listen to these words. This is the words of the Apostle Paul. I tell you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing witness in the Ruach HaKodesh that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. And whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Messiah came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Paul mourned for his Jewish brethren. He loved his own people more than himself. And he outlines just how glorious, in this passage, just how glorious the nation of Israel is. These terms of endearment that Paul gives us here, this is merely a reflection of what is in his heart. Right? And here's the deal. If we love Yeshua, and Yeshua loves his people, right? If Yeshua truly does, those who profess him will also make the same acknowledgement that Paul did. Make the same confession. I want to show you a story found in the Gospel of Luke. It's one of the most beautiful love stories I have ever read in my life. And even one of the, the most beautiful love stories in all of Scripture. Because it actually gives us a picture of what it means for a Jew and a Gentile to be a chad, to live as one, to be one new man, and the Messiah Yeshua. We find the story in Luke chapter 7, verse 1. Now, when Yeshua concluded all his sayings, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Yeshua, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. Now, first things first, we need to identify the characters in the story. We have a Roman centurion. He is a Gentile. He is not a Jew. This Roman centurion has a servant, also not a Jew. Okay? We have Jews. And then we have Yeshua. Now, according to the story, the centurion here, he hears about Yeshua. No doubt he heard what he was doing. Healing the sick, raising the dead, the blind seeing, the lame walking, the mute speaking. If we look in verse 3 here, the text explicitly states that the centurion sent elders of the Jews to Yeshua. In the Greek, presbyteros. It is elder. In other words, the men that this centurion had sent to Yeshua were men of renown. They were men who sat in positions of authority. They were well respected in their community. They were not insignificant. And we come to verse 4 and we read, and when they, the Jewish men, the elders, came to Yeshua, they begged him earnestly, saying, the one for whom he should do this was deserving. So here you have Jewish men, not just any Jewish men, men of renown, men who sat in positions of authority. They are coming to Yeshua and begging on behalf of a what? A Gentile who's ever heard of such a thing, right? And I, I really want you to put this into perspective. You need to put yourself in the shoes of these Jewish men. Because here, these Jewish men, they're given an opportunity of a lifetime 
to come before Yeshua the Messiah, to get the ear of the Messiah, to look at him face to face. Think about this opportunity of a lifetime, knowing that whatever I ask, he can do. If they would have walked up and said, Lord Yeshua, take the star from the heavens that is ten times the size of the earth, bring it down and put it in my hand, he could have did it. There's nothing he can't do. They're given an opportunity of a lifetime here. All right? And nowhere in this passage, this is so important, will you find that they asked anything for themselves. How mind-blowing is that? Could I count on you? If you got to see Yeshua face to face to ask him for my needs. I mean, every time we go to prayer, believe me, I bring my list and I start going through it, and I'm really concerned about myself, guys. I'm dumb as rocks. Lord, give me wisdom. Please, Lord, give me more wisdom. Give me more strength. Give me more this. It's always give me, give me, give me. But in this story, nowhere will you find that these men of renown, these Jewish men who are going on behalf of a Gentile, ask for anything but only that of the Gentile. What was it about this Gentile that would provoke these Jewish men to do such a thing. We're told in the next verse, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. This is what the Messianic kingdom looks like, where you have Jew and Gentile living together as one new man in Yeshua. Think about this story of love. It is love built upon love built upon love. It's a story, it's an intercessory story. Now let's go back to the Roman centurion for a second. He didn't have the needs. Who had the problem? His servant. Well, go back to this time. Servants were a dime a dozen. So he dies. I'll replace you. I'll get a new one. But does he do that? You have the Roman centurion, opportunity of lifetime. Anything he asks, he is a man of faith. Yeshua can accomplish. Yet he asks nothing for himself. He asks on behalf of a servant. And the Jewish men that go on behalf of this Gentile ask nothing for themselves. Intercession built upon intercession. Love upon love. I think we can learn a lot from this story. Gentiles who believe in Yeshua, they will, I promise you, love the nation of Israel. They will love for their Jewish brethren. This is what the church should look like. Now, I want to point out one other thing before I continue. Did you notice what the Gentile had done? His love, his love wasn't in word or in tongue. It was in deed and in truth. What did it say? He built them a synagogue. I wonder what Mr. Chrysostom thought of this, who hated the synagogue. He loved the Jewish nation and built them a synagogue. Let's jump ahead in church history a couple of hundred years. I want to take you to the Fourth Council of Toledo, early 7th century, 633 A.D. There were several canons established at this council, and I'm just going to share a couple of them with you to show you just how aggressive the campaign of the church was against the Jewish nation. Canon number 60, we read this. We decree that the sons and daughters of Jews are to be separated from their parent lest they likewise be involved in their heirs. Can you imagine this? 
The atrocities of the church know no boundaries. Can you imagine having your children taken from you? Oh yeah, all in the name of Jesus? Lest, God forbid, the Hebrew people do what they were commanded to do by God. And that is to train up their children in the way that they should go. And the way that they should walk. We lost power. I heard it beep. Do we lose power over here? It's coming. Did I lose it before the cannon went up there? Okay. I want you to see this because it's unbelievable. I don't see any bulb action here, Eric. This is a staple of Corner Fringe Ministries right here. Technology problems. There we go. Praise the Lord. There we go. All right. So here's the canon. We decree the sons and daughters of Jews are to be separated from their parents lest they likewise be involved in their errors. So this was the church, the Christian church, to go out to separate the parent from his children. Why? Because they didn't want them teaching them Torah. Again, going back to the very thing. God commanded the people of Israel to train up their children in the way they should walk. They were to remind them of what the commandments were. It was their obligation. Read Deuteronomy 6. Read Proverbs. This is what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to teach their children how to keep Sabbath and that it was holy. They were to teach their children to distinguish between clean and unclean. Let me ask you, how many of you would like to give Christianity a try when they're in the business of child abduction? I mean, seriously. And again, let me remind you also, stripping a child away from its parents is kidnapping. And according to Scripture, it's punishable by death. And it should be. Taking little Jewish children away from their parents, and we wonder why the Jewish people don't want to hear about Christ. For us to be effective lights to the Jewish people, to the rest of the world, it is imperative that we know Christian history. Having that sensitivity, it's going to give us the ability, a greater ability to witness to them. I think the Catholic scholar Ed Flannery, he articulates it the best. And I pulled this again out of Our Hands Are Stained With Blood. This is what he says. The vast majority of Christians, even while educated, are all but totally ignorant of what happened to the Jews in history and of the culpable involvement of the church. It is little exaggeration to state that those pages of history Jews have committed to memory are the very ones that have been torn from Christian and secular history books. I couldn't agree more. That's the problem. Those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. Let me show you another canon from this council. Canon 63. Jews having Christian wives are to be admonished by the bishop of their diocese that if they desire to abide with them, they must become Christian. And if being so admonished, they refuse to obey, they shall be separated. 
You want to talk about literally destroying families. Nobody was better than the Christian church, apparently. This council literally sought to destroy the entirety of the Jewish home. It wasn't enough to take the children from the parents, but then they also sought to destroy holy matrimony. According to this canon, if your spouse didn't convert to the tenets of the so-called Christian church, the church would force separation. Again, the church violating biblical standards. Standards which were readily available in the New Testament on how you would deal with situations like this. For example, 1 Peter 3.1, Wives, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. It doesn't say, wives, run for your lives. Your husband's lost his mind. Submit to your husband. That godly conduct that you give, that your husband sees, is to win him over. But not according to the Christian church in the 4th century and onward. One of the most tragic things that I have ever read is what is known as the Visigothic professions in the mid-7th century. It was a letter sent from the Jews who were in Toledo, and they sent this letter to the king professing their allegiance to the Catholic Church. And this, this letter, it mirrors those professions of faith that we read about in the Church of Constantinople 300 years earlier. In other words, what I'm saying is, is that here you saw all these proclamations of what a Jew must confess, confess to convert to Christianity, and here we go over 300 years later, and we're seeing a letter that is literally answering, if you will, the very same tenets that were required. My point is this. Satan put in his thumb, keeping the pressure on specific observances found in Scripture generation after generation, century after century. I want to take a look at this letter. And you're going to see this. it's a tragic letter to read. We read, To our most merciful and tranquil Lord Resinwith, the King, from us the Jews of Toledo, as witnessed or signed below, we well remember how we were long ago, uh, long and rightly constrained to sign this declaration, promising in the name of King Chinthilla's holy memory to support the Catholic faith, and we have done so. However, because our, our, our pernicious lack of faith and the ancient heirs of our fathers that held us back from believing wholly in our Lord Yeshua HaMashiach or accepting the Catholic truth with all our hearts, we therefore make these promises to your greater glory on behalf of both of ourselves and our wives and children through this our declaration undertaking for the future not to become involved in any Jewish rites or customs nor to associate with the accused Jews who remain unbaptized. I hope it doesn't overheat. We will, not, we will not follow our habit of contracting incestuous unions or practicing fornication with our own relatives to the sixth degree. In other words, Jews would not marry other Jews. This is an attack of Satan to go out to break down Israel. We will not, on any pretext, either ourselves, our children, or our descendants choose wives from our own race, but in the case of both sexes, we will always link ourselves in matrimony with Christians. We will not practice carnal circumcision, celebrate the Passover, the Sabbath, 
or any or the other feast days connected with the Jewish religion. We will not keep to our old habit of discrimination and the matter of food. Now what is amazing about this, in other words, the Jews were fully rejecting the instructions, the commandments found in Scripture. This is that confession. These things had to be compromised, renounced, to come into the Christian church, or into what I would call the Catholic faith. You know, this is the destructive pattern behavior that we see over and over again happening. These very things, Satan putting his thumb, putting pressure on, not wanting them to observe feasts, not wanting them to observe Sabbaths, not acknowledging between clean food and unclean. Look at the, look at the last statement here. We will not keep to our old habit of discrimination in the matter of food. It's a complete breakdown in society. Let's drop down. With regard to swine's flesh, we promise to observe this rule that if through long custom we are hardly able to eat it, we shall not through fastidiousness or error refuse the things that are cooked with it. And if in all the matters touched on above we are found in any way to transgress, either presuming to work against the Christian faith or promising uh, in words to perform actions suitable to the Catholic religion. I want you to understand something. All through church history, what you are finding, the confession that you had to do, you, first of all, you had to renounce God's commandments in general, but the confession to convert was Catholic church. I am confessing I am coming into the Catholic faith and you were to be baptized the Catholic way. You had to be baptized. You're not baptized into the death of the Messiah. You are baptized into the church. You understand? Let's jump ahead. I wasn't going to do this today, but I'm going to try to cram this in. I was going to stop here. I want to I try to cram this in really quick, if you don't mind. I want to jump ahead to the Reformation. The Reformation was really birthed in about 1517 when a German monk who was ordained a priest in 1507 and began working as a professor actually teaching theology in 1508 at the University of Wittenberg. A man by the name of Martin Luther, when we've all heard of him, right? The, called the father of Protestantism. Well, he had published a, a, a famous work. Now, I, I want to give you a little background on Luther. Again, he was a monk, he was a priest. He was a Catholic priest. The 95 Theses, he came out, and what he was doing is he was trying to reform. He would never tried to, I don't want anyone to tell you anything different. Luther never set off on an endeavor to start a new movement of Protestantism. That's not what he did. He was trying to reform that which he was a part of. He saw errors and flaws in the Christian or Catholic church, and he wanted to reform those errors. So the thing that really got the Catholic Church heated was his work of 95 Theses. Well, I want to show you just a couple of these things so that you understand where Luther was coming from. The things that he was rejecting, we find, uh, number 21, he says, Hence those who preach indulgences are in error. When they say that a man is absolved and saved from uh, every penalty by the Pope's indulgences. We go to 26. The Pope does excellently when he grants remission to the souls in purgatory on account 
of intercessions made on their behalf, and not by the power of the keys which he cannot exercise for them. Let's go to 27. There is no divine authority for preaching that the soul flies out of purgatory immediately the money clinks in the bottom of the chest. 28. It is certainly possible that when the money clinks in the bottom of the chest, avarice and greed increase. But when the church offers intercession, all depends uh, in the will of God, or you could say on the will of God. I wanted to show you some of these, but you can read the 95 Theses all on your own. What you will find over and over again, what was Luther's issue? Indulgences. The church was going out and basically taxing the people so that they could repair their buildings, do all these things. But the problem with that is it's one thing to go out and tax your people. It's another thing to sell it for forgiveness of sins. It's another thing to tie it to that, which is a major issue. But if you go through these 95 you find that this was the primary objection. It was not any of the things that we touched on today that the Catholic Church, the Christian Church at the time, was promoting. None of that. So you wonder why we have those things today. Understand, Luther was a Catholic priest. And he took a lot of Catholicism with him. The stuff that he was seeking to reform, while I agree with, was not even touching the tip of the iceberg of the issues that were going awry in the Catholic Church. I want to read to you something from a book called The History of Jewish Christianity. I want to read to you a quote made by Luther. Luther had published a work in 1523 under the title that Jesus was born a Jew. This is Martin Luther. Listen to this remarkable passage. Keep in mind he was part of the Catholic Church. He said this, Those fools, the papists, bishops, sophists, monks, have formerly so dealt with the Jews that every good Christian would rather have been a Jew. And if I had been a Jew and seen such stupidity and such blockheads reign in the Christian church, I would rather be a pig than a Christian. Powerful statement. In other words, if if you're, what you're calling is Christianity, I don't want it. I don't want to be called a Christian. With these words, I agree. He goes on and he says, They have treated the Jews as if they were dogs, not men, and as if they were fit for nothing but to be reviled. They are the blood relations of our Lord. Therefore, if we respect flesh and blood, the Jews belong to Christ more than we. I beg, therefore, my dear pap uh, papist, if you become tired of abusing me as a heretic, that you begin to revile me as a Jew. Therefore, it is my advice that we should treat them kindly, but now we drive them by force, treating them deceitfully, deceitfully or ignoramously, saying they must have Christian blood to wash away the Jewish stain. And I know not what nonsense. We're going to end here today. Next week, we're going to pick up right where we left off. And though these words are some of the most beautiful, articulated words against the Christian church, we are going to find that Luther, unfortunately, did not continue in that vein, but actually compounded the problem. Shabbat Shalom.